0: Well, have you ever had one of those days or one of those seasons of life where it just feels like everything is falling apart? Maybe you spend an hour cleaning up your living room and then within five minutes your toddler has it looking like it was before. How many of you have ever been there? Yes. Every parent in the room is raising their hands. Look at that. Um, (laughs) You know what? I wasn't trying to start a marital spat here, Jane. Whew. going to get me in trouble. Or maybe it's your spiritual life, maybe you've invested a lot of time and energy into following the Lord, and maybe you're in a dry spell. where you're wondering, where is God? Shouldn't something be different? Shouldn't he be hearing your cry? It feels like you're left hanging. Or maybe you took a job at your company years ago, and you thought, you know what? I'm looking forward to this, I'm gonna be a Christian witness in this company. And as the years have ground on, it's gotten hard. You feel lonely. It's like, I don't feel like I can continue on being the only one here. Throughout our lives, we're going to hit patches of life where it's going to feel like I don't really want to keep going on. I don't want to keep cleaning up the mess. I don't keep dealing with the challenges that are in front of me. Today, we're going to look at a part of Elijah's life where he was in a past just like this, where he didn't feel like going on. He felt like giving up what we're going to see is that God actually lets him stay in that place longer than Elijah wants to stay there, because God wants to teach him a lesson. God wants to pull out some of the perspective that has weighed Elijah down, lift him up to see the high calling and task that Elijah still has before him. So in our time together today, we're going to do a couple of things. We're going to see four things total. We'll start with the background, look at how did Elijah get to this place, Then we're going to see that he despairs unto death in the wilderness. He really just wants to die, get it over with. And sometimes despair can lead us to wishing that. But in the midst of that place, we're going to see that God comes to Elijah, not in the spectacular, not in condescension, but in a whisper. Then we're going to see that in spite of Elijah feeling like all is lost, that God actually has a very high and important calling. It's going to have international, national, and spiritual consequences. So Let's dig in today. We're going to start with the background here, kind of talk about how did Elijah get to where he was. And the first thing, that if you read the prior text in 1 Kings, there is the rise of Baal worship. Now, Jezebel married into the Israelite king family, and she was the daughter of Baal. Guess which god she worshiped? Right, Baal. And so she brought Baal worship to Israel, and she wasn't just saying, hey guys, just try to you know, choose your own god. It was, no, you are gonna worship this god. The community of faith was forced to worship a foreign god. Then, on the back of that, Elijah had a contest. This is 1 Kings chapter 18. He invites the prophets of Baal to an interesting contest. It's called Call Down Fire. And so he invites both sides like, hey, you guys pray to your God, Baal, I'll pray to mine. We'll see which one calls down the fire. Now Elijah's tactic is really interesting. It was the end of a three-year drought, and he decides to take up a lot of the extra water, pour it on the altar and the sacrifice, and say, all right, let's see which one can call down the fire. And guess what? God shows up in spectacular fashion, burns up the sacrifice, licks up all the water not usually how I start fires in the woods. It's usually dry, dry stuff. Nope. God consumes it all. What a powerful display. So that is in the recent history of Elijah. There's also been a three-year drought that Elijah predicted would happen and also predicted when it would end. Now this is very interesting because Baal was the god of storms, the god of rain. And so if Elijah God's spokesman can say, guess what, it's not going to rain. That means Baal is not really God. Now, unfortunately, on the back of all of that, that didn't make Jezebel very happy. And As we open 1 Kings chapter 19, I invite you to follow along in your Bibles with me. 1 Kings chapter 19 opens like this. Now Ahab, that's the king, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah gets a death threat. Now, he could have looked back in the past and be like, well, God showed up in some pretty powerful ways. Maybe I'm going to be okay. This actually rattled him to his core. Elijah's response Now he's going to despair unto death itself. So here's what he does. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Elijah thinks life's so bad, he'd rather just die. Just get it over with. Just just kill me now. And so instead of waiting for Jezebel to do it, he's going to do it himself. He runs out into the wilderness. Now, where have we seen the wilderness before in the biblical storyline? You can shout it out. Temptations for Jesus. Okay, what else? who wanders in the wilderness? Israel. Why do they wander? They didn't trust God. It's very interesting that here Elijah goes to the exact same place. He goes down south, he goes into the wilderness, and there he says, I am no better than my ancestors. Now it's not clear which ancestors he has in mind, but my guess is it's the same ones that wander the wilderness, not trusting God. He's out there, he's like, you know what, I'm done. He basically has the same, it does the same thing that Job's wife wished, wished Job would have done. God, just take it. I'm done. I'm cashing it in. I can't handle it anymore. And he goes to sleep under this bush. But God has more in store. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals, probably Kingsford, and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then lay down again. So This is interesting. In the opening of the chapter, Jezebel sends a messenger, and in in Hebrew, angel and messenger are the exact same word. The messenger says, you're going to die, but here, God sends a messenger bringing food to sustain Elijah's life. And what does he bring? He brings bread and water. What did God provide in the wilderness for his people? manna, bread, and water from a rock. Interesting enough, here's Elijah in the exact same place, in the wilderness, getting bread and water. He's not yet seeing the clue, I'll point out. It continues. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God, There he went into a cave and spent the night." So Elijah goes after eating this food and it says 40 days and 40 nights. There's another reference here to Moses. Moses is on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And so he goes to the exact same mountain and it says he finds a cave. We don't know which cave, but people speculate this might be the cleft of the rock that Moses hid in while God passed by. We don't ultimately know. But it's at this point God decides to engage Elijah. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. This is Elijah's complaint. There's a couple things we're going to see in this complaint. One is that it's very eye centric It starts off, Elijah saying, look, God, I have been very zealous. I've done a lot. And guess what? They're out to get me. Don't you understand? Don't you see, God? Like, I've put my time in. I did that contest with the prophets of Baal, and now, guess what? They're out to get me. Can you believe it? God would allow me and my zeal be persecuted by others so he's very eye-centric and even this part here at the, towards the end i am the only one left he feels like he's holding up the whole world he's like i'm the only one following you and calling people to follow you it's all on my shoulders god but don't you see that that's where elijah is he feels like he's the only one holding the whole thing together and it seems like god's up there not caring god i'm doing a lot of work down here Sometimes we get into those places where we feel like we're the one holding the world together, that God's not holding up his end of the bargain. And it seems obvious to us as we look in on Elijah's life, but it's not so obvious to us when we are living in this kind of place ourselves. We too might think God owes us just a bit more care in this life. Maybe we have faithfully given money to support the Lord's work and suddenly we find ourselves unemployed. It's easy to think, that God should see how anxious we are, and He should care about our situation enough to rescue us before it ever gets too deep, before it ever cuts too much. Or we might think that we've been faithful in sharing our faith, and now really hope and expect God to bring our spouse or a child to Him. Or we might have given our lives to bring God's vision for human life to our world and find ourselves frustrated, perhaps, for instance, you're a C-suite executive, and you've chosen to put a boundary in place to protect your family. Or perhaps you've chosen to be a stay-at-home mom or dad and have sacrificed financial income to do so. Perhaps you've done some of these and starting to feel like God should give you a clear sign of victory, that it really was a good choice, that it really was worth it, and you wish that the office would stop demanding more evenings, more weekends from you. Or you wish, perhaps, that staying at home with your kids felt more valuable and more meaningful than it did. Sometimes we get in these places where we wish, oh, wait, God, I I did this good thing. Shouldn't this be working out more? Shouldn't it matter? Shouldn't shouldn't I feel better and more successful about it? Those are good questions to ask. But the most important questions we're going to see throughout today, the most important question to ask is, what is God calling me to right now? What is God's call in the moment? There could be times to quit, to give it up. There's also times to rebuild. So we've seen that Elijah's complaint here is very eye-centric. He's very focused in on himself. Lord, I've been zealous. I'm holding the world up. The second thing about this, if you go back and read 1 Corinthians 8, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 18, not 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings 18, you'll see that most of what he says right here is actually not true. If you go back to 1 Kings Yes, he's been zealous, but you know what? At the end of 1 Kings, the Israelites are saying, the Lord, he is God, not Baal. And guess whose altar is getting built at the end of 1 Kings 18? The altar of the Lord. And then, earlier in the chapter, one of Ahab's own servants had told Elijah, guess what? I've got a hundred prophets hidden in a cave, and I'm feeding them secretly. So he's not the only one. But Elijah, because he's down in the depths of despair, in spite of the evidence that has been presented to him, can't latch onto it. He can only see that, look God, I'm holding it up and you're not doing your end of the bargain. And despair can have us block out and obscure the things that God's actually doing around us because we can't see it. We can only see ourselves. And so here's Elijah. He gives an honest complaint to the Lord. Lord, I'm here, I'm doing this. How does God now come and engage his prophet? God comes, as we're going to see, in a whisper. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Now for those who have read Exodus, some of what you see here is actually kind of surprising. When the Israelites are on their way to the mountain, a giant wind shows up and dries up the Red Sea. God was in it. God was protecting them. Here it says a wind tears the mountain, and it tears it before the Lord, but it's not the Lord. It's not actually Him. They get to the mountain, and they're led by a pillar of fire. And there's fire on the mountain when God appears. But for Elijah, God is not in the fire. Then there's an earthquake. And when Israel is at the mountain, the, the mountain's trembling from God's presence. But here, God is not in the earthquake. And when they hear him, some of the people report the sound of trumpets, that God's voice is showing up at the sound of trumpets. But even here, there's no trumpets. It's a gentle wind, a whisper. God shows up in a different kind of way. Oftentimes we get to expect that God's going to show up in a particular way. Once he does it in a certain way, we're like, well, that's, that's how he does it. But God likes to change it up every now and then because he wants us to connect to him, not to the pattern that we've come to expect he's going to show up. One of my favorite lines from C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspians, at the end, after the humans have done their best to wage their battles on their own power, and at the end, Aslan asks Lucy, why didn't you ask me for help? And remember her response? Her response is, this: well, why didn't you show up and save us like last time? And Aslan says, things never happen the same way twice. See, Lucy had an expectation, well, Aslan just shows up and it's all better. And sometimes, God does show up that way. But sometimes, he lets us sit in the weeds a little bit to discover we don't have the strength to do it on our own. And God's going to leave Elijah just hanging there a little bit longer to teach him the lesson he wants him to see. And it's in a still, small voice that he shows up. I think this is also instructive for our spiritual life. Oftentimes in Christian circles, we can talk about God, and we often talk about God showing up at the, at the high points of our life. That it's in the mountaintop experiences, and we go from mountaintop to mountaintop, and it can feel like the goal of the Christian life is just to stay up there as long as possible. I remember just a few months ago, I was talking with one of my college roommates, and we had grown up in the same youth group together. And every summer, we would go off to camp, and it was a great youth camp, and you'd walk into the auditorium, and man, they'd have heart pumping music, energetic speakers all kinds of fun videos to watch and it was like yeah so at the end of the week they would always call us down to commit ourselves back to christ And i remember every summer my friend would get up and go down and throw a stick in the fire and he'd come back and man he was jazzed for about two weeks and then after that you'd ask him like hey what's god doing and he just had this like toast response i i don't know i'm not sure where god is Because in his mind, he came to associate the euphoria of camp with God showing up. And as we talked this last time, he said, you know, it wasn't helpful for me because I came to think I had to always be there. But he's a musician. And there's days he has high days, there's days he has low days. He said it wasn't helpful for me because I thought I had to always keep it up here. That God wasn't down in here. But God can find his prophet even when Elijah's down here. And he does, and he does in a very still, small voice. So God asks another question. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same thing he just said a little time before, right? Elijah has this self-talk or this tape just running in his mind. I'm going to call this the woe is me MP3. And he's chosen to push play again. He's played it once and now God comes back and he's still playing that. Hey God, boom, things are bad. I've been very zealous for you. I'm the only one left over here. Don't you see this? Come on, you've got to help me out. <sighs> he's playing that over and over again. And I think this is actually, because it's mentioned twice in the text, I think we're meant to get this as readers, that this is where Elijah's stuck. And it's also the part in Elijah's soul that God wants to fix or address. And so that's why God's going back at it, to bring it back up. He's going to actually now... Redirected, and i would say this I, I think god's posture here is not whipping him in the shape i had i was talking to someone about this passage earlier this week and they said well god really whips elijah into place and i'm like you know i'm not sure i get that If this is a gentle whisper i'm not sure it's a whoosh, get back in shape no it's elijah let's talk about this let's unpack this why do you think you're the only one and, you know, we have all kinds of little MP3 tracks we play in our heads. There's, there's ones I, I hear in the Christian community. So, for instance, here's, here's one that I think I hear sometimes. It says, Woe are we. You know, we have been very faithful and outspoken, but our numbers are dwindling. Woe are we. Christians are being marginalized. They don't like the constraints that the Bible puts on sexuality. Woe are we because now they're coming for us, too. It might be a collective MP3 I hear American Christians playing, but we also have individual ones. Now, some people think that we just need to be confronted with the facts. But remember, Elijah had heard the facts, he'd seen them all in chapter 18, and yet he still kept pushing play. Why? We don't get an exposition here of why Elijah's clinging onto this little MP3 in his head. I can just tell you what it's like for me. And sometimes, after I make my initial peace with them, sorry, this thing's going crazy over here. Um, After I make my initial peace with them, I start to like them. Sometimes they get me sympathy. I tell them to other people and they're like, yeah, you are the only one left, yeah. And sometimes I like that, think about that about myself. I mean, I imagine that's pretty compelling. Who doesn't wanna be the last man standing? Yeah, Elijah, I'm the last one. Sometimes we've come to like those little narratives that we tell about ourselves. The problem for Elijah is it's not true. And so I'm going to invite you today just to spend some time thinking about what, what is your MP3? What's the narrative that you tell over and over again? Maybe it's that you don't fit into youth group. Or maybe it's that life really is just drudgery and you can't bring yourself to imagine a workplace or home life more flourishing than what it currently is. We don't get a play-by-play of what happens in Elijah's heart, but we do know this much. Elijah's woe is me MP3 is nowhere near what God has in store for Elijah. In fact, God is going to use him to usher in international, political, and spiritual change. If he clings to his MP3 and just imagines that he's the only one, he's going to forfeit what God has in store. But the question for Elijah, and it always is for us, even in those moments of despair, is what is God's call for us? It might be to stop what we're doing, but it could also be to push into it, to see what more he has in store. And for Elisha, the latter is the case because God has something in store for him. And God now gives him an assignment. After spending this time listening to his complaint, now God's going to redirect him. And notice what God says. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram, Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Mehalo, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. God now gives him three assignments. The first one so anoint this guy, Hazael. Now, we don't usually know a whole lot about Aram, but Aram is off to the northeastern side of the kingdom of Israel. They're actually a thorn in their flesh. And God tells them to go anoint a foreign king. And as you read on in 1st, 2nd Kings, that foreign king is gonna launch military campaigns against Israel. And so part of Elijah's response is, hey God, you don't seem to be caring a whole lot. They just walked away from your covenant, which says... You're going to give them over to their enemies. First task is, go anoint the foreign king. That will be a part of my temporal judgment on my people. He's going to have an international effect. Imagine that, this guy who wants to die in the desert. He's going to now have a play in international politics. But it's not just international. The second one is the national focus. God tells him to go and anoint this guy, Jehu. And as you go through the rest of First and Second Kings, Jehu launches a military campaign against Ahab's son. And he gives a reason for it. And his reason is for all the wickedness and idolatry of Jezebel. So here's Elijah again. God, you're not seeing this. You seem to be blind up there. You seem to be falling asleep. And God says, yep, you're going to anoint the king who's going to actually overthrow the current regime and usher in, hopefully, a new one that will follow God. And then third, this prophet who thinks, oh, I'm all alone over here. I'm doing it by myself. God says, guess what? Go and anoint your successor, Elisha. And if you read on in First and 2 Kings, he gets a double portion, double portion of Elijah's spirit. So is he the only one? Is he the last man standing? No. God has really good things in store. And God's going to use Elijah to usher them in. So God raises his vision away from, hey, you're the only one holding the whole thing up. Guess what? I've got more in store, buddy. And God now gives him a task to influence the international, national, and spiritual future of the kingdom. And then, God comes back to the whole, I'm the only one. He says, hey, you're not really the only one. I have reserved. So God says this, I have reserved 7,000 who have not yet worshiped all This is God's doing. And Elijah thinks, like, man, I'm doing all the work. I've been very zealous, God. I'm trying to keep them together. And God's like, don't worry. It's not a major army, but I've got my people. And they are pure. They have followed my covenant. And so God lifts Elijah's gaze away from his circumstances where he feels like he's the only one and says, look, I've got a bigger plan that I'm orchestrating. I'm bringing you into it, and you have a role to play. And so while we often want God to rescue us from the valleys of despair, God often leaves us in them long enough so it finally sinks in that it is not by our might or our power that the kingdom of God comes. For Elijah, he needed to learn that it was not through his zeal that Israel would turn to Yahweh. In fact, God had preserved the 7,000 for himself. God would do his work in Elijah and in the country. And when we hit those valleys of despair, we need to be asking this question, God, what are you doing? What are you here teaching me? In Romans 8, 28, Paul writes these words, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And it's not necessarily like, hey, everything's gonna be happy and everything's gonna be on mountaintop experiences, but rather that God is working out the kinds of, the kind of people that we need to become for his glory, for his purposes on the earth. The the men's group that I was leading over the summer, we reflected a little bit at the end on the first Heidelberg Catechism question. And that is, and I'll just pull out one line in the middle of it. And it says this. It says, He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And if you think back, like, Man, if God can understand the hairs falling from our head and then at the same time make sure everything's working together for our salvation, even these moments, even these seasons of despair where it feels like all is lost, can we look up and say, God, what are you doing? You've got something here. And I might not know it in the moment, but even in the moments of doubt and darkness, God is using them for something. If he's working out our salvation, like he promises. And that is quite a perspective to take on life, that every little thing about our life is actually working together for our salvation. And as Elijah's personal strength and ministry waste away in the desert, God is using that moment to humble Elijah, but then raise him up for the task he has in store. Like a gifted surgeon, he must remove Elijah's expectation that it's through his zeal that the community of faith would endure. Because it is through God's faithfulness, His tender mercy, that the community of faith will endure. Not our strength, it is his. And so I don't know where you find yourself today. Maybe you find yourself looking over a living room and it's shambles. And I think the question is, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because our hearts usually in those moments are like, I'm just giving up, I'm cashing in. And there might be a place where God says, you know what, you have freedom to walk away. But for Elijah, God calls him to stoop down and begin rebuilding the torn down towers, the altars, and calling people to follow Yahweh once again, to anoint his successor, who will continue to call people to God. So today as we end, I'm going to invite you to spend some time in prayer, reflecting. I want you to ask these questions of yourself. They're in your bulletin, but they're also up here. I'm mean, to give you some, some time to pray. And, Brooke, can you come and play softly in the background? I want you to just ask this question. What are your MP3s? What are the things that you play over and over again in your mind? What narratives or talking points do you replay in your mind about yourself and the world in which you live? And then ask God, which parts of these are true? As we saw, quite a bit of Elijah's were untrue. What parts are false? And then ask, what is God's call to you in the midst of the situation you now face?